Hi, this is Sunny, and this is a Sunny Look at the Bible. All right, week two, Revelation. We are just looking at chapters two through five. Actually, not even through five, more like chapters two and three, because this is a section of the book. So you might say, how are we ever going to get through this when there's so many chapters in Revelation, yet we're only going through one the first week and two the next week. But the reality is, is Revelation is split into four sections. So we're getting through in the first two weeks, the first section, the introduction in the first section of Revelation, which was going over the letters to the different churches that got these letters, the seven churches that were on the circuit to receive the letters. The only thing I want to recap from chapter one is the very end of chapter one. And this is important because this specific section of verse one through uh, 13 through 15, it is repeated, but it's split up into chunks. It's like broken down into chunks and parts of this is in the introduction of every letter to all seven churches. And so I want us to understand it because we're going to see it seven times. It says, in Re- and please open your Bible, have your notebook by, if you're listening on podcast or you're watching while you can't write things down, you can always go back. But Revelation 1, 13 through 15 says, and in the midst of the seven lamps, lampstands, remember I showed you the, the menorah last week with the six and then the seventh of the lampstand, the candelabra it looked like, was the son of man. It says, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white with wool, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Someone asked last week at the end of our study, why were his eyes like a flame of fire? I'm going to address that, but I'm also going to address all of the other characteristics that John saw in his vision of Jesus. Isaiah 11.1 is basically like the footnotes of this part of Revelation. Isaiah came from the Old Testament. He was a prophet and he wrote the book of Isaiah. He was a major prophet only because he wrote a very long book, whereas the minor prophets wrote shorter books. So Isaiah 11.1 is basically like the footnote for Revelation, the New Testament book. It says in 11.1, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. This is referring to that lampstand. Now, this is Isaiah who hasn't even been on earth I mean, he comes long before Jesus is ever born. He comes before they realize Jesus came from the line of King David. So Jesse was the father of David, the shepherd boy who killed Goliath, who went on to be King David. The Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jews, you've seen this. They have the star of David. If you've watched any Holocaust uh movie, you've seen that the Star of David was the symbol for the Jews. And so the Star of David and the the prediction or the prophecy that Isaiah said that David's line is where the Savior will come from. He didn't know to call him Jesus. He said, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, I wish I would have brought the menorah up in here. Sean's recording his message for uh, for Sunday downstairs, so I can't I can't even go grab it. But the menorah, I showed you how it's like a lampstand with three candlesticks on each side, and then the middle one is 
what John saw, that Jesus was the middle stand of the menorah. So it says that a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That means those three lampstands on each side will bear fruit. Those are the churches. So Jesus fulfilled that. And that's why Jews were hopeful for a military king because he was told that this was going to happen. Okay, so the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom. This is still Isaiah talking about a future Messiah, not knowing it would be Jesus. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Lord, Isaiah didn't know that the Lord would send his son, Jesus, one in the same of himself, and that he would have fear of God, and yet he was Jesus. So Isaiah's predicting some guy, not realizing God would eventually send his own son in the flesh, come from the line of David, and it says in verse 3, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously, execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. Okay, remember in the um, the thing we just read in chapter 1, it said that Jesus' mouth, there was a sword that came from his mouth. Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, predicted that the Savior would come with a scepter from his mouth, says he will kill the wicked and command them from his lips. This is connecting that vision. Now, verse 5 in Isaiah, again, we're looking at footnotes, really, for revelation. Righteousness will be belted around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Now, let's compare that to chapter one, it says that a breast, that a belt was around his breast. Okay, last verse we're going to look at in Isaiah, Isaiah eleven six. The wolf will d- dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. Again, Isaiah has no concept of Jesus. Yet we later know that Jesus started teaching in the temple at age twelve. If this doesn't confirm the inspiration of the Bible and the truth that Isaiah was predicting something that not only happened in Jesus, but later John would refer to as well and take note of, that just ties everything together. So John is using words in Revelation to give us a picture of Jesus' character and what it feels like to be in the Son of Man's presence. So let's break this down. Jesus is depicted as a as wearing a long robe belted at the breast with a golden belt. Now in biblical times, cloth was very expensive. Most people owned only one or two garments. Workmen's garments would be shorter, ending at the knees or mid-calf. This was to save on the cost of material if anybody is a seamstress, you know that you buy by yards. And so that's why uh, even like XXL shirts cost more than regular size shirts because the cost of material. So a workman would have been in a shorter uh, material, but also it would not interfere with their work. But we notice that in Revelation, John saw God, Jesus in a really long robe. Now, why we need to take note of this is because when Jesus was on earth, he probably was wearing a shorter garment. He was a tectone. We think of it as a carpenter, or it was translated in our American Bibles, and everyone thought forever he was a carpenter. But back then, they didn't work as much with wood. They worked with stone. So he was a stonemason with his father, his earthly father, Joseph, who that's what he did. They would have had shorter robes, not to interfere and get hung up on their knees as they're building. So 
so John later's having this revelation going, hold on, Jesus was like humble and a servant and a worker, and he wouldn't have had a long robe. Okay, then it's then though, what you need to know about history is that a nobleman could afford longer garments. The extra length was a way of saying they have more money. Uh, just like I think it was in the Victorian age that chunky women, thick, full-sized, is that what you would call it, women, uh, like, for instance, on the Titanic in that era. I remember thinking Rose from the Titanic was so beautiful, but that she wasn't just like scrawny skinny. And I remember people saying, like on the media saying, Rose was so uh correct for the time period because if she came from money she would have been plumper because people who had less money or workers or lower class they didn't have a lot of food so they would be skinnier so anyway the noblemen uh, could afford longer robes garments which was a telltale sign just like in the victorian age you could tell like kings were very big kings uh in in the dark ages would have been round and plump if you've seen pictures of um king henry the fifth you'll know what i'm talking about next to know and to note in this uh, mindset of what john's telling people about priests were the noble class but they wore long robes similar to what john describes and then the placement of the belt that's described is that the material is of importance. It says that it was worn higher and it was a, it looked like gold. Josephus, who lived in the era right after Jesus died, he mentions that Levitical priests wore belts around their breasts. So it shows that Jesus is far superior in his kingly garment than uh, what he was when he humbly walked the earth. Also, it says that Jesus' hair is white like wool or snow. So the whiteness is a symbol of purity and freedom from sin. Isaiah 118, also like a footnote, says that uh, it says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So now, later on in the New Testament, this is showing us that John sees Jesus fulfilling the ability to make our sins white as snow. So the description of Jesus' hair is also like a description Daniel gave in Daniel 7, 9. I'll, I won't read that, but if you're taking notes, you can look up Daniel 7, 9. White hair was usually associated with elderly people, and it meant that they gained wisdom through experience. So for Jesus to have hair as white as snow would mean, would portray his wisdom. Then this is getting to the question we had last week. Uh, that was, why were Jesus' eyes like flaming, like flames? And this is similar to Daniel's description in the Old Testament, Daniel 10, 5 through 6. It said that he, his eyes uh, were like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze, which it's interesting, it said about the menorah, that Jesus' feet were like bronze. So again, John is referring to something in the Old Testament. Daniel was so terrified by these eyes. And the reason that these eyes were so important is because they were penetrating. They were showing that he sees all and he and he is all-knowing. That's why they're symbolized by fire. Daniel was so terrified by what he saw in the vision of the fires of the eyes of, of flame and the white hair and all of that, that he fainted. And you probably noticed at the end of Revelation 117, John also fainted. 
Okay, so now the symbolism of all of this is something we need to remember as we read about the seven churches and every church letter opens with a descriptive of Jesus, reminding them this is coming from that very clear representation and vision of Jesus himself. The last thing I want to say about the feet is that it said his feet were of copper or bronze. Uh, and this is actually showing that he is able to stomp out any opposition. If you want to refer to or look later, Malachi 4, 1 through 3 talks about, uh, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet and on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Okay. Then it says that his voice was like many waters. Think of like Niagara Falls, a huge waterfall. These are the these are the way in which Jesus is bringing this letter to the churches. Now on to chapters two and three. We're going to go church by church. Okay, I think of it this way. I think about having lived a life where my sister, who was younger than me, season could watch from my mistakes. And even though she didn't relive my life and she couldn't live my life, she could watch from my mistakes and she could glean from that. And because I chose to live a promiscuous life, because I chose to, uh, I wouldn't say majorly rebel, but enough that I was doing things behind my parents' back, my sister watched me and then she chose not to follow in my footsteps. So from doing things behind my parents' back and living a bit of a... Uh, rebellious life. What I got out of that is I got uh, pregnant as a teenager. Uh, I had a lot of heartache, lost the baby, had to go through grief of that. Like the, the repercussions of my actions were real. Season watched that. And my, our other sister, who's just under me in age and seasons, the youngest, our other sister followed in the same footsteps. Uh, my sister had a couple children out of wedlock, um, she's had multiple marriages. She's for some reason chosen that path. Uh, season watched us and season was on a path of purity and, and she got married, was pure when she got married her and her husband, when they got engaged, kissed for the first time. I mean, she learned from my mistakes. This is how we need to look at these letters to the seven churches. We need to look at them like the churches that went before us, like the big brother or sister that we can watch and learn from. Because yeah, we can go do it our own way as churches and as believers, or we can look at these letters and realize that the same things we're tempted with today, they were tempted with. Now they have different names, they have different context, but they're the same. There have been churches along the way in the 1400s, 1500s, 1800s, that would have thought this is talking about our church because it relates so well. Yeah, that's the great thing about the inspired word of God, that he's talking to people from years. The yelling is the the starting Sean's message recording. So if you're hearing yelling, that's what that is in my home. Uh, so John is giving these letters to churches. However, these churches are not... Uh, the only ones to hear it, and we aren't the only churches to relate to what they're going through and to what we need to fix. When we're also talking about the churches as we go through this, I want you to think more about you, 
your family, people that you go to church with more than like the four wall church. We're talking about the church, the church uh, Jesus referred to as his bride, meaning that's very personal. That's I'm his bride, you're his bride. He's coming to take his bride back if we're committed and dedicated to him. So we could for sure read these and go, yeah, that's the church of America or that's that church down the road. I want us to be cautious to not do that because that was never the point on this. This is to see ourselves in it. All right, we have 20 minutes to get through the seven churches and we're going to be able to do it. The letters written by John to the church of Jesus, these seven churches, uh, came a little over 60 years after Jesus. Uh, well, the church was about 60 years old. The church had experienced tremendous growth, which does that not remind you of the church in America and all over the world. However, it had experienced persecution. Under Rome, records show, just under Rome, records show over 45,000 Christians were slain by crucifixion, burned to death, and thrown to wild animals. So when we, we know that Jesus was killed by crucifixion, but that's how... Christians were being uh, crucified or killed. And before Jesus, Rome crucified people. Jesus wasn't the first to be hung on a cross. Uh, Romans would crucify in like an X shape where arms and legs were out like an, like the letter X. Uh, they crucified people upside down. They crucified people like they crucified Jesus. Um, there were different ways in which to make crucifixion more uncomfortable and a harder death. Jesus was, was, uh, he actually died from asphyxiation, which have been his, his, he was like this. So his lungs filled up and from his lungs filling up, he drowned. Of course, he probably also was on the verge of bleeding to death. Sean's going to be going into that for Good Friday. And he always gives the true picture of what the crucifixion looks like, looked like. But many Christians were crucified as well. So many believers were afraid and unsure about the future. Many Christians and church people were thinking, why would I want to put myself out there for that? So some just started to fall away just out of wanting to save their own life. Some were just around Rome that was doing the living up their life. And so that's why there's so many warnings to the church. Jesus wanted believers to know that he knew exactly where they were, though. So he would he would say in his letters three different things you hear commonly. He saw their good works and faithfulness and patience in the face of persecution. I mean, Jesus sees that in us. He sees that our friends can make fun of us when we're choosing Jesus, when we're choosing not to get drunk, when we're choosing to make different paths for our life. Theirs was on a whole new level, but still, we need to see that Jesus sees how we're patient with the fact that we are the minority sometimes. Jesus also was saying in every letter that Jesus' purpose in sending these messages to the seven church was, into, was to empower believers to overcome the enemy. Presently today, God is again walking in the midst of his people, preparing his bride, us, for his coming. He really is stirring something in the end times, and you can definitely see that during this time of the pandemic. Uh, so let's look at the first church on the route. It was Ephesus. Uh, this was the most important city in Asia at the time. It was the capital city of Asia Minor. Now I want you to be writing notes maybe about Ephesus that you could say, okay, that sounds like Green Bay, or that sounds like Las Vegas, or that sounds like the, some churches in America. Okay, 
Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, it possessed, well, no, just, just the city of Ephesus possessed advantages in commercial, geographical, and great Christian privileges. It was wealthy for sea and land trade. It reached out with one hand to the east while the other hand grasped the Greek culture. So you have Roman culture, Greek culture influencing the city of Ephesus. Its magnificent temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, it was beautiful. In fact, in the British Museum today, there's fragments of the columns, which can show people the gigantic proportion of what they had built. It was a seventh wonder of the world. The religious tone induced by its pagan worship and degrading superstitions were upheld by a priesthood. There was a priesthood that was encouraging pagan worship and superstitions. Think about the the things that we, like um, horoscopes today, uh, like, like star studies. These are things that that frankly, um, there's people that seem like they're wise that are really, or influencers who are really encouraging superstition in the belief of stars, horoscope, when you were born. It's putting all of our trust in this like, oh, categorize me of when I was born and under what stars and what season of the year, and now you'll know everything about me. That's why Jesus throughout the Bible says, I know every hair on your head. This is personal. This is relational. And don't think that I'm going to leave your life and what I think of you by chance, by what day of the year you were born and what part of a horoscope you belong in. Okay. Uh, this Ephesus was also the scene of where Paul had labored for three years. So you've heard other places in the Bible that Paul labored. It says in Acts 20, 31, Paul warned them that a false teacher would come and try to draw them away, but they persisted. John spent time there too. And he said, you're doing really good against false false teachers. They rejected and also didn't allow the worship of the sexual goddess Artemis among their members. But here's the but. But Ephesus became a large, proud church. And John had to remind them that Jesus walked among the seven golden lampstands and held the messengers in his right hand. Remember the stars, the seven churches? Hi, Jesus is holding it. You think you're large and proud and you got this? Just be clear that Jesus alone is the head on that menorah of all the churches. And he holds the stars or the churches, the messengers in his hand. So the church of Ephesus needed to remember the Lord as the head. Their first love had gone out of their religion, meaning they were going, uh, they were going through the motions. They were mechanical. They were strong against heresy. They'd stand up and yell. But this church was tolerant of just conventionalism. So they would sometimes fall back into their old ways because they would yell at everybody who did something wrong. But then they became more tolerant of things or frankly, just proud. So we're going to, I'm going to, I spent the most time on Ephesus. Now we're going to buzz through. It gives you an idea of just how thoroughly um, you could get into each of these cities and the churches. So there's seven churches. Ephesus is number one. The church was known for being loveless. So now if you wanted to take a graph and just do one through seven and write some comments in the columns or next to each of these churches, uh, I think you're going to see similarities 
to how we are in this world today. So Ephesus was a church that became loveless. They would stand against everything they thought was wrong. Have you ever noticed those people? They always will give their opinion and they're policing all other people and all other Christians, but they're loveless. They don't have a love and a concern for people. They're mad and angry that they're living like that. They're the ones yelling, false teacher, false teacher. Their strengths were, they were hard workers. James or John did say you have patient endurance, meaning you're putting up with persecution. You're st- you're steadfast. You're staying with your faith. Uh, they would eject evil. They were kicking people out of the church, and they were sticking clear on what they knew they were supposed to do to not follow false teachers. But here's where their failures were: they've lost their first love, is how it is said in, in Revelations two one through seven. So the instruction was: repent and do the works as you did at first. The, the instruction, and think about a large, proud church. You can just keep rolling. I mean, Life Church is a large church. We have to, we have to remember that the small things are important too. So taking Cheerios or coffee to the, the medical workers or sending a thank you card to somebody that nobody will ever see compared to the bigger things we could do, like that's something we have to we have to work towards. Or if you're like, man, we're financially set right now and you forget, like when you didn't have money, you tended to look for other people who were in need and you gave them whatever you could, even if it wasn't finances, you you made them a meal because you didn't, you couldn't afford food, but you kind of knew where they were coming from. And now you're doing good. And you as the church are like, I forget there's even people who are struggling with groceries right now because we can become large and successful as Ephesus Church did and then go away from our first love of Jesus and of other people. So the promise to the faithful that were in Ephesus, that were following him, was that you will eat from the tree of life. All right, next church, Smyrna. So Church 2, Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. I'm just giving you the highlights. Smyrna was called the Port of Asia. It was a church known for its suffering. The strengths of Smyrna was that John said, you're enduring your suffering and poverty, yet you are rich. Just endure that suffering because you are rich. In fact, he's saying, you have no failures, Smyrna. Uh, his instruction is just keep doing it. Remain faithful. Even when you're facing prison, persecution, or death, just remain faithful. I can't find faults in you. Jesus has nothing to say to you. Negative. And then the promise was, I will give you the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. Basically promising you may die for this, but you're going to heaven. Okay, ch- uh, church three is Pergamum. Pergamum. We get to go through the next four churches in 10 minutes. We can do this. This was in Pergamos, Revelations 2, 12 through 17. It talks about it. It was worldly. It was built on a hill and there they were a thousand feet above the countryside around them. So they were create they kind of were created um, and their city was had this natural fortress. And so their strengths were they were loyal to Christ, they refused to deny him. Uh, he uses the reference to the two-edged sword to counter and say that it was sharper than any Roman sword. So they were obviously being persecuted by Romans with the sword. So he reminds them in this letter that the two-edged sword that Jesus has and has for them is stronger than what Rome can do for them, do to them. But here's their failure. They tolerated cults. 
They tolerated heresy, idolatry, and immorality. People came to get healing by the god Aclepius, Asclepius, it's A-S-C-L-E-P-I-U-S. He was a symbol of a servant, of a serpent. So uh, the symbol of that God was a serpent and people would come to get healing. So they're on this hill, a thousand feet above anybody else. It's a natural fortress where they're safe, but people would go to this. They were considered Pergamus was considered uh, a place of healing. Well, obviously, a serpent and a false god is not going to bring healing. Uh, but that's what they were known for. And their failures were they tolerated this. The church even did. Uh, so the, the, the repentance that's called for by Jesus is repent. You have four idolatrous cults, uh, Zeus, Dionysus, Asclepius, and Athene. You even have, they even had one member of their church martyred on Satan's throne. In fact, the city was considered Satan's throne because it was up high. So it says that in the promise to them was that there was hidden manna and a stone with a new name on it. I believe personally, because now we've been to Jerusalem, that uh, the white stone could have been the white tombs. You may have heard somewhere else in the Bible, it talks about the whitewashed tombs. Uh, the stone in Jerusalem is white. It's, I mean, it, it's like an off-white, basically. And I feel like the promise that was given is, oh, it's a mess up there on Satan's throne in Pergamos, but there is hidden manna, meaning I got I got you covered even if it's in the hidden. That's my promise. But there is a stone with your name on it. And that's not talking about I'm going to put you in the ground in Jerusalem. It's saying that, that I've got you and that kind of like your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your name I will personally write for what you're going through. It's... Uh, I also read something, one commentary said that it could have been talking about the white stones like the gladiator games, uh, just kind of like your heroes. Okay, the fourth church, uh, Thyatira, Thyatira, Revelations 2, 18 through 29. This was a church where there was a lot of false doctrine. Uh, a work, this was a working person's town. It was known for cloth making, dyeing cloth and pottery. In fact, Lydia, Paul's first convert, and Lydia was the one that helped plant the church and she had multiple homes. She would have been a very uh, successful dyer or cloth maker. In fact, the Bible in the New Testament, other parts talks about that. Uh, this is where Lydia was from. What they were doing right, their strengths in Thyatira, is that they had love, faith, works, patient, endurance, and constant improvement. However, it was a place of cults, idolatry, and immorality again. It was a secular city with no religion. That's probably why Lydia helped Paul by saying, have a church plant in my home, because it's a very secular city. I would think of it, it would feel probably a little like uh, Las Vegas, Sin City. It was just known. It's just a secular city, although obviously churches are springing up. One lady is referred to in these verses, Revelations 2, 18 through 29. Uh, either her name was Jezebel, because it talks about Jezebel, 
Bell, or it's referencing that same spirit of a woman who is trying to pull people away from the truth, but she was within the church. So she was using, and this happens today. Now you can start to say, uh, or start to think about churches where, uh, they have a fresh word or they have a prophet or a prophetess come in and they start to create their own ministry or their own following. And they say just enough right things that it sounds like the Bible. It sounds like God or what Jesus would, would be behind, but then there's, they're, they're uh, able to weave in what they do and pull people away. So either it was another lady called Jezebel, ironically, or they're referring to that Jezebel spirit of pulling people away. Uh, because Jezebel was a true, um, horrible, horrific queen uh, that asked for John the Baptist's head. All right. Uh, this is the warning. Judgment is coming. Repent. Faith, the faithful hold fast until I come because some were faithful, probably the ones not following Jezebel. Here's the promise for this church. I will give you authority over the nations and the gift of the morning star. All right. Verse, I'm not sorry. Uh, the church five is Sardis. This city was known as spiritually dead and the church was known as a dead church. So the letter John's writing to Sardis uh, is saying, you look good on the outside. And it even says this in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. You look good on the outside, but corrupt and dead on the inside. Like church people who you would never know, they go to a service or a mass. Uh, they they you, they just don't have the fruit. And so from the outside, you see a steeple or a beautiful grounds and landscape, and it looks like that's a thriving church. And on the inside, it's dead. Uh, the good about what they did is that only a faithful remnant have kept the faith. So the few that did keep the faith in Sardis, they were faithful and there was just a few. Uh, the book of life is mentioned within this, like writing, getting your name written in the book of life. Uh, their faults are that they are spiritually dead. So they're going through the motions. They might attend every week or once a month, but spiritually they're dead. And then uh, they are warned, repent and turn back to Christ, strengthen what little faith remains. Their promise is the faithful will walk with Jesus and not be blotted out of the book of life. That's the reference to the book of life. Yes, when we get to heaven or heaven comes to, to earth and we have the new earth, as we know is going to happen, there will be a book that our name will be written in or our name will not be written in. The sixth church, Philadelphia, this was a place that was spiritually alive. The city had an earthquake, so most people lived outside because they were afraid. Uh, it did keep barbarians out, though, and it was a gateway into Central Asia, Asia Minor. That's where, what Philadelphia was as a city. Uh, the church, the, the good thing they did was they kept God's word and they have not denied his name. Philadelphia had no faults, no failures that were referred to in a letter. And then uh, their what they were told to repent or what they were told is, I have placed before you an open door. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Isaiah 22, 22 said this exact verse. What I think is so cool is that they didn't have anything to repent of. They were doing good. And so he just gave a promise. I placed an open door and I'm actually going to keep you from persecution. Uh, the promise, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Basically, new Jerusalem and new earth. Philadelphia, they get a gold star. Uh, Laodicea, our last, our last church we're going to talk about. They were a complacent city and church. Uh, none 
there was nothing good. There was there was nothing we could say or that the letter said that they were doing right. In fact, Laodicea, if you remember in other parts of the Bible or you've heard preach before about lukewarm, uh, they were neither hot nor cold. They relied on riches but didn't realize spiritual. They were spiritually improvised. They they were in a spiritually improvised condition. Uh, they were warned, turn your indifference and repent. And their promise was, I will invite those who overcome to sit with me on my throne. Now, I want to point out there's three structures to each letter. And so hopefully you read chapters two and three and you saw the letters. But here's the, in the last minute before I do Q&A, the structure of the letters follow this pattern, this general pattern. Number one, there's a greeting basically to the angel or the messenger. Some think it was a pastor, but the messenger to the church, there was a greeting. Number two, there was a title of the risen Jesus. And like I said, the end of Revelations 1, it said the description of Jesus in every letter, it pieced apart the description and they got one little piece of the description at the beginning of their letter. Then the next section, so there's seven Remember, seven is a big number. Patterns, patterns, patterns. Uh, so number one, the letter starts with a greeting. Number two, a title or description of the risen Jesus. Number three, a section headed in the letter, I know, and it introduces praise for what the church is doing good. Number four, they get a criticism of what they're doing wrong. Number five, they get a warning. Number six, they get an exhortation, like he that has an ear to hear, like this is how you can do better. And number seven, they get a promise. Because beginning with something like, to him that overcomes, I will give dot, dot, dot. So the patterns of seven, repeat, repeat, repeat. The only thing I want to read to you, because Laodicea, it talked about neither hot nor cold. And I just want to give you some information because I think there's a mis, there's misinformation about what lukewarm really means. Laodicea was the wealthiest. This is the last of the seven cities known for its banking industry manufacture of wool, a medical school that produced eye ointment. But the city had always had problems with its water supply. At one time, an aqueduct was built to bring water to the city from hot springs. But by the time the water reached the city, it was neither hot nor refreshingly cool, only lukewarm. The church had become a bl as bland as the tepid water that came into the city. Lukewarm water makes a disgusting drink. The church in Laodicea had become lukewarm and thus distasteful and repugnant. The believers didn't take a stand for anything. Indifference had led to idleness. By neglecting to do anything for Christ, the church had become hardened and self-satisfied, and it was destroying itself. There is nothing more disgusting than a half-hearted, nominal Christian who is self-sufficient. Don't settle for following God halfway. Let Christ fire of your faith and get you get you into action. Some believers assume that numerous material possessions are a sign of God's spiritual blessing. Laodicea was a wealthy city and the church was also wealthy. The people were. But what the Laodiceans could see, could see and buy had become more valuable to them than what was unseen and eternal. Wealth, luxury, and ease can make people feel confident, satisfied, and complacent. Uh, Laodicea was known for its great wealth. Christ told the Laodiceans to buy their gold from him, real spiritual treasures. The city was proud of its cloth and dyeing industries. Christ told them to buy white garments from him, his righteousness. See how he's speaking directly to them? Laodicea prided itself on a precious eye ointment that healed many eye problems. Christ told them to buy their ointment for their eyes so that they could see the truth. 
John 9, 39. Christ was showing the Laodiceans the true value was not in material possessions, but in the righteousness of him. So also the reason that he talked about neither hot nor, nor cold was because they understood that in the city with the water issues they had. When we say that to people, we don't quite get it. When he talked about their eyes and getting their eyesight or getting white garments when they're a country that makes money on dyeing things, it's him saying, you guys are putting everything into, uh, into what you can control. Here's why I'm going to wrap this up before Q&A. Are we not living in that right now? Asia is known as an importer. They are the ones that is that are closed down, their borders are closed down, and even as they want to open, we're, we're not willing to work with them right now. Uh, cities that, Sean was talking to me about Las Vegas today because we know people that are pastors there. There's no essential businesses in Las Vegas that are feeding their economy. The casinos are closed, which means the restaurants are closed. Restaurants that there's no delivery option for them. They were within casinos. The amount of money and affluency and I can I can work harder and do it myself has been taken away from all of us. And like the seventh church talked about in here, we have to realize that everything we thought we could work harder at to get has been stripped away. And we need to learn to rely fully on him. Thanks for joining me today. For more great content like this, check out Cheery Conversations, available on all podcast platforms. You can also go to SunnyHennessy.com to connect with me and find out all the things going on in my head at all times. See you next week.